Dear Lord, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and I pray that you would open up this passage in a way that would encourage us and challenge us and show us Christ, that today you would be alive and well, working through your word in our hearts to give us hope and appreciation for the role that you play as the good shepherd in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I preached to you a sermon entitled, I Am the Door, right? We looked at how Jesus was the door of the sheep, and we talked about how a door is a hinged or sliding barrier that marks the entrance to a house or to a building or to a room, or in the case of John chapter 10, the door opens up into a sheepfold. It's a sheep pen. Without a door, you would be denied access into various places that you would like to go in your life. And with a door, you have the possibility of entering into different locations as you desire. A door is a necessary and an important part of our lives. A door is a passageway. A door is often seen as the entrance to the path that brings something good and something desirable into your life. And at the same time, a door also keeps out. A door is a barrier to an unwanted foe. We lock our doors at night to keep our homes safe. A door, whether it is opened or closed, is a very good thing. You would not want to live your life without a door. Jesus Christ is the door of the sheep. Jesus is the door that allows the true sheep to come in. And Jesus is the door that keeps the false shepherds and the false sheep out. Jesus is the door of the true sheep. This means that he and he alone is our entrance into the kingdom of God. And at the same time that he is the door, he keeps out those who are not of his sheep. Goats are denied entrance. All wolves are kept out. And just as we see Jesus as the door in John 10, 7 through 10, we now see Jesus in verses 11 through 18 as the good shepherd. And a shepherd oftentimes would take his sheep into a sheepfold at the end of the day, and he would place them there for safety throughout the night. And the sheepfold would often be protected by a fence or a stone wall some 10 or 12 feet high. And the only way that you could get into that sheep pen would be through the door. And in the morning, the shepherd would come and he would call his sheep by name and he would lead them out. The sheep may be grazing in the sheep pen, but when the sheep would hear his name called, come, brown leg, come, black nose, Come whitey, come fluffy, come spotted one. His head would pop up and he would stop grazing and he would look towards the calling of the shepherd and the sheep would respond and he would follow his shepherd's voice. And in verses one through five, we are told that the sheep listen to the voice of their shepherd, a, a stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers, but the shepherd's voice. They will follow out of the sheepfold and into the pasture where they can be fed and nourished. And this is a, a picture of Jesus, the good shepherd, leading those who are the true sheep out of Judaism. 
and into Christianity, out of the old covenant and into the new covenant, out of an external adherence to the law and into a heart made out of flesh that longs for a personal relationship with the good shepherd through repentance and faith. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, this is the fourth of the seven I am statements in the gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And these seven I am statements make a statement about how Christ is divine, that he is fully God and he's also, as we know, fully man. And this statement, I am the good shepherd, is right in the middle. And so if you were to follow some type of chiastic structure, typically what happens is you start and you end and then you come in to the emphasis and that would be the middle point. And that's what we're looking at this morning. I am the good shepherd, if you want to see it as a chiastic structure of the I am statements, is the middle one that gets the most emphasis. It's the middle of the, of the Gospel of John. Here, Jesus, maybe greater than all of the others, is saying to us this morning, he is your shepherd if you're in Christ, right? A shepherd is a, is a person who tends to his sheep. He leads sheep to green pastures. He feeds them nourishing food. He protects the sheep from wolves. He attends to the sheep when they are injured. A shepherd looks after the sheep all throughout the day and make sure that they are safeguarded throughout the night. A shepherd watches over his own. He, he keeps his eye on them. He cares for them. He knows his sheep, each one by name. The good shepherd ministers to his sheep. He, he cherishes them. He will not harm them. He will never neglect them. This is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus does. He is the good shepherd. The word good here used is setting the Lord Jesus apart from all other shepherds. There is no one like this shepherd. It's not even close. Good refers to Christ's character. He is perfect. He is holy. He is in a class all by himself over and above all other shepherds. You might remember from Luke 18, the interaction between Jesus and the rich ruler, when the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus wants to know whether this man is calling him good teacher because he recognizes Christ's deity or for some other reason. In other words, only God is good. Uh, only God is holy. Only God can be our true shepherd. And Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. I am, just like Yahweh said I am to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus is the good shepherd because he is the divine shepherd. He is the good shepherd because there is no evil in him, no selfishness, no flaw, no sin. The New Testament actually gives us two other words to describe the good shepherd, along with the word good that we're talking about here a little bit this morning. Two other words are he's the great shepherd 
and he's also the chief shepherd. In fact, listen to Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, where we see Jesus as the great shepherd. The writer of Hebrews writes, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever and ever Amen. This reference in Hebrews 13, 20, and 21 is a reference to the great shepherd. It's a, it's a reminder that we serve a resurrected Savior shepherd who by his blood and the blood of the covenant, he's able to equip us with everything that is good so that you and I will be able to do his will for his glory. He, he's a great shepherd who has been resurrected from the dead that you may also have eternal life. And so we have the good shepherd, John 10. We have the great shepherd, Hebrews 13. And there's one more reference in 1 Peter 5 to Jesus as the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And here in that context, Peter is addressing the fellow elders as under shepherds, under the chief shepherd. That the pastors and the elders are to serve as under shepherds, under the chief shepherd, faithfully watching over the flock and eagerly waiting his return. And when the chief shepherd appears, if the under shepherds have been faithful, they will receive an unfading crown of glory. What a great and awesome privilege it is to know today that if you are in Christ, you have a good shepherd, you have a great shepherd, and you have the chief shepherd. Uh, this should encourage us today. This should lift our spirits today. No matter what your week has been like, no matter how much difficulty you have with your finances or your health or relationships or, or whatever you're struggling with today, be reminded that you, if you're in Christ today, you have a good shepherd. Not only does he know your name, but he knows your strengths and he knows your weaknesses and he knows when you're injured and he binds up your wounds and he cares for you and he walks with you and he feeds you and he shepherds you throughout your life. And so for our time together today, I just want us to be blessed by five characteristics of the good shepherd. Five of them. You see them in your notes if you're following along this morning. Number one, the good shepherd dies for his sheep. He dies for his sheep. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We could say this, your first blank, his death is sacrificial. His death is sacrificial. The good shepherd lays down his own life for his sheep. He didn't send another. He does the work himself. He lays down his life both as a daily sacrifice in service and as a propitiatory sacrifice in atonement. Jesus daily sacrificed his own comforts and his own glory to do the will of the Father. And Jesus served as a, as a faithful shepherd throughout his life and in his death. Jesus, as the good and faithful shepherd, is seen here in the context of John 10 as the antithesis to the thieves and the robbers that were mentioned in verse 8. Those thieves and those robbers referred to the false shepherds of Israel the false scribes, the Pharisees who attempted to steal from the sheep and to harm the sheep. An example of that would be John chapter 9 where they excommunicated the man born blind. 
They interrogated his parents. They should have embraced this born-again beggar and his parents, but instead they threatened to kick out anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Christ. They didn't help the sheep. They were sheep harmers. These Pharisees and these thieves were robbers. These same Pharisees denied their own parents physical care in their older age by giving the money to the temple and calling it Corban. In Mark chapter 12, verse 40, we see how these false shepherds treat the sheep. It says they devour widows' houses. In Luke eleven thirty nine, 39, and the Lord said to them, now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed or robbery and wickedness. Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So what we learn in the New Testament is that the leaders of Israel should have been sacrificially giving themselves up for the sheep, but instead they are stealing from the sheep and they are abusing the sheep and they are harming the sheep. And Jesus Christ is described here in John 10 as the good shepherd because he is the exact opposite of these false shepherds. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 22 through 24, we read about how God will raise up. He will raise up a, a faithful shepherd in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Ezekiel 34, 22, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. In other words, there are true sheep, and there are false sheep, and God says he will be the judge of which sheep is which. He says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Read in that passage in Ezekiel, this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the greater David, the, the greater shepherd who is the good shepherd, and this good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In fact, five times in our passage this morning, Jesus clearly affirmed the sacrificial nature of his death. Here in verse 11, the good shepherd says he lays down his life for the sheep. Again, in verse 15, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 17, I lay down my life. Verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. Verse 18 again, I have authority to lay it down. Understand here that Jesus did not die as a martyr. He was not killed by men. He died as a willing substitute. He voluntarily laid down his life for sinners. He willingly gave himself up for us. This is what we read in Philippians chapter 2 in the Kenosis passage as Paul writes to the church of Philippi who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to cling to but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Don't think for one second that it was easy for Jesus Christ to give up his life. We read about how he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a sacrifice for our Lord to lay down his life for you. 
And not only was it a sacrificial death, but your next blank says there that his death is a selective death. Look at the end of verse 11, there in the middle, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Please take notice of the article, the sheep. Right? Verse, verse 11 here is telling us it's a particular sheep. We've already heard from Ezekiel 34 that God judges between the sheep and the sheep. There's a particular group of people in mind here, a particular sheep. Jesus died for these sheep that would hear his voice. Jesus died for these sheep that flee from the voice of strangers. Jesus died for these sheep who come through the door. He died for the sheep who enter through him and that go out into the pasture through Jesus. These are his sheep. For whom did Christ lay down his life? It was not for fallen angels, but for sinful men. And it was not for men in general, but specifically for his own. It wasn't a universal death to accomplish a universal redemption, but a sacrificial death for a select group of people from whom Christ's substitute provides forgiveness. Christ's atonement is a particular redemption. Christ's atonement is a focused fulfillment. Christ's atonement accomplished something. It is a powerful appeasement of the wrath of God for those who would repent and believe. There is no spilt blood here, but Christ's blood was poured out for people in particular who are of his fold. Jesus died for the sheep, not for the goats. And so we see here that Jesus died for a particular group of people. This is what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 121, she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Or Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He doesn't say in that passage, for all, but for many. That Jesus prays for his own in his high priestly prayer of John 17, verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Kind of an amazing observation, right? Jesus, I'm not even praying for the world. I'm just praying for them, those whom you gave me, for they are yours. It's a selective election of those from eternity past that he chose for his own glory and his own sovereign grace because he's a good shepherd, because he's entitled to do whatever he wants. And the question we should be asking is, are you one of his sheep today? Or are you a goat? Are you sitting on the right side or the left side? Are you a Republican or a... I'm just kidding, all right, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been washed? Have you been washed by his blood today? That's the question I'm asking you. Are you a true sheep? Have you entered through the door? Have you come through Christ? Have you heard his voice? Would you recognize your name? If he called it out, the good shepherd dies for his sheep. A second characteristic I wanted you to see about the good shepherd is, number two, the good shepherd does not leave his sheep. He does not leave them. Verse 12, your next blank, a hired hand leaves the sheep. A hired hand leaves the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. This word hired hand refers to a, a hired laborer. 
He is not the owner. He does not have a vested interest. Therefore, he may or may not prove to be a faithful shepherd. That will all be determined by his own character. In this instance, we learn that the hired hand is not a shepherd. He doesn't have the same commitment to leading and feeding and protecting and caring for the sheep. He is simply trying to make a buck. He is a mercenary. He is a fair-weathered worker who cannot be trusted to do the job in the midst of difficulty or danger. He is a wimp who flees in the face of danger. And when this hired hand sees the wolf coming, he abandons his post and he, and he runs away. He is overcome with fear. He doesn't stay to fight for what is right or to protect the sheep from harm. He is only in it for the money, and when it's no longer worth it to him, he makes a run for it. He, he takes flight. He, he goes AWOL. At this point, the sheep are, are left without a shepherd, and some are eaten. Others scatter. The flock is disrupted. There is, there's no counterattack. There's no comeback. There's no defense. There's no safety. There's no plan for gathering the sheep back together. They've now just run amok, and they're out in the midst of evil. This is Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. In the book of Zechariah, God has some strong words for the shepherd who deserts the flock. Shepherds should have stayed and given their life for their sheep, but when they run and the flock scatters, the Bible says in Zechariah eleven seventeen, 17, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. This verse is saying that the shepherd of Israel who abandons the flock is useless. He will face punishment. The foolish plottings of the worthless shepherd will be dealt with when the true shepherd returns. We also read about this in Jeremiah 23, 1 through 3. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. In that passage, again, we learn that the faithless shepherds will be dealt with directly by God. They will be repaid for their evil deeds. The Lord will gather his true sheep. He will take the remnant that is left and bring them back into the fold. He will bless them and they will be fruitful and they will multiply. His covenant of grace will not be broken. There's always a remnant. There's always those in the midst of the most difficult persecution and the failure of shepherds to shepherd the church who will never stray from the voice of their shepherd. A hired hand, he leaves the sheep because he does not, your next blank, he doesn't care for them. Hired hands don't really even care for the sheep. Verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Why does the hired hand flee? Why does he run away? Because he doesn't care. This word care means to be concerned. It means to have an interest in someone. Uh, the hired hand only cares about himself. He only cares about his bank account, his well-being. 
his own protection and his own safety, and he never is willing to risk his life for the sheep. He doesn't care for them. He's looking out only for himself. This is still happening with fallen shepherds today. I read an article this week about how the founding pastor of South Lake Presbyterian Church in Huntersville, North Carolina, has agreed to plead guilty to wire fraud in connection with the embezzlement of up to $1.5 million from the church and its South Lake Christian Academy. Another article reported that Pastor Keith Hall and his wife Leslie turned themselves in after being caught stealing over $40,000 from the Journey Church of the Triad in High Point, North Carolina. In Columbia, South Carolina, the Carolinas aren't doing so well, I guess. Uh, In Columbia, South Carolina, a former Midlands pastor has been sentenced to five years in prison after he pled guilty to embezzling over $250,000 from his church. Uh, you're, you're looking at me kind of judgmental, I can tell. You guys. So I, I try to take my, I don't have anything to do with our finances here. I can't even write a check. Uh, uh, so I don't, I don't count the money or keep up with the money. I know not who gives what or does what. I know what we give, but I don't know what you guys are giving. But, you know, the idea is we still need accountability. A shepherd could be tempted. I'm sure these men didn't start off into the pastorate, maybe thinking they're just going to swindle the church. But somewhere along the way, it happened. And we see that, quote, unquote, what appears to be good shepherds become ruined shepherds when they pursue what was really probably going on in the inside the whole time, which was a lust for materialism. And we have to understand that the list of pastors like this goes on and on. The the shepherds don't care about the sheep. They just care about the money. They're, They're looking for an easy job with easy pay, and yet they're not doing the work of a yeoman. In fact, in Ezekiel 34, I read one passage out of that chapter. Turn there with me, if you will. Ezekiel chapter 34. This would be the premier passage in the Old Testament about the shepherds of Israel who were sternly rebuked by the Lord God for not doing the work that God had called them to do. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. That would be Ezekiel. He's writing here, warning us of this occurrence of the false shepherds, Ezekiel 34, verse 2, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds 
and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Now, you could read the whole chapter, but it just continues to reiterate all those same themes that God is mad. He is upset that he gave this awesome privilege of leadership to the shepherds of Israel. They abandoned their post. They began to fleece the flock and partake for their own selves. Thank goodness that the good shepherd is nothing like that. Thank goodness while we see all the examples of bad shepherds, we also have some examples of good shepherds, of the faithful prophets and the apostles, but the key example is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's nothing like that, right? The under-shepherds, hopefully, of, of our church are not seeking the example of the hired hands, but rather seeking the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for us that we would be faithful to his word, that we would give our lives to the work of the ministry of the gospel, that we would be true to the sheep. May we heed the words that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you as overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We need to be careful. You need to pray for us. We need to be faithful to look to the example of the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who never leaves or takes advantage of his sheep because of how he cares for them. In fact, let me give you a third characteristic of the good shepherd. Number three, the good shepherd knows his sheep. Let's look at the intimacy, your next blank, between the shepherd and his sheep. Verse 14, he says, Jesus speaking again, I am the good shepherd. I, I know my own, and my own know me. Again, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The, the word good, as we've already looked at, is this comprehensive word used 76 times in the New Testament. And if you'll remember, at the first occurrence of the word good in the Gospel of John is found in John chapter 2, verse 10, when Jesus did his first miracle by turning the water into wine. Remember what the head waiter said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. In John 2, the meaning of the word good signifies choice or excellence, which is superior to every other kind. It is being contrasted with something that is inferior. And in the same way, in John 10, Jesus, the good shepherd, is being contrasted over and against the bad shepherds, only Jesus is the good shepherd, only he is kind and gentle and firm when he needs to be. He is the good shepherd who knows his own and his own know him. The, the sheep are not under this shepherd as someone who takes advantage of them. They are under the shepherd as someone who loves his sheep for who they are and not for what he can get from them. I mean, think about it. The Lord Jesus needs no wool. He needs no meat. He needs no sheepskins. The good shepherd has no desire to take from the sheep, but to give to the sheep. He has no desire to harm the sheep, but to help the sheep. He has no desire to abandon the sheep, but he adores the sheep, and he cares deeply for them, and he knows them. In these verses, the word know expresses a deep, loving relationship. The simple truth here is that Jesus knows and he loves his own and his own know, and they love him. Jesus has known his sheep from eternity past. 
Ephesians 1, 4, even if as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Jesus has always known us. In his mind, in his sovereign wisdom and intellect, in his omniscience, Jesus, he knows our strengths and he knows our weaknesses and he knows our victories and he knows our failures. He knows our good tendencies and he knows the areas that we tend to struggle and he loves us anyway. We're his. He bought us. For all of our good and all of our bad, he bought us, he brings us in, he knows us, he loves us, we take our refuge in him. It's Nahum chapter 1 verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. It's 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. It's John 10.27, my sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and I know them and they follow me. Part of what's being emphasized here is that if the good shepherd knows you, then he will care for you and protect you. And just as Jesus is the good shepherd, you and I ought to be good sheep, which means that we know the shepherd and we follow the shepherd. We listen to his warnings of danger. We heed his wisdom. We depend on his voice. This is Psalm 23 being lived out and preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. The intimacy here is this idea of what exists between the good shepherd and his sheep exists because it also exists between the father and the son. That's your next blank, the intimacy between the father and the son. That's where we get our intimacy with the shepherd because we see, verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's intimacy between the father and the son. In fact, our, our elder team right now is reading a book entitled Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's the most helpful book to better understand and practically benefit from our relationship with a triune God. And in that first chapter, the question is asked, what exactly was God doing before creation? It sounds like one of those questions your kids may ask you, like, hey, Dad, so like, what was God doing before creation? And you're like, uh, you know, he's doing good things, son. He was doing good things back then. You know, so the question's asked in this book, what was he doing before creation? You know, sometimes we might think, well, man, we live in time and space, and we must be keeping God awfully busy with all of our problems and all of our needs and all of our stuff. And yet Michael Reeves says it's an easy question to answer because Jesus tells us explicitly what was happening prior to creation in his high priestly prayer again of John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, here's the answer, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Question again, what was God doing prior to the creation? He was loving his son. He was enjoying a relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit. They had perfect unity. One God, three persons, enjoying perfect fellowship prior to creation. It's, it's amazing to think about. Again, that's intimacy, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been together. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, John 13, 35. And the Son also loves the Father with, with that same kind of love. John 5, 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing 
of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. And whatever the father does, the son does likewise. It's John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's John 10, 30, I and the father are one. It's John 15, 9 and 10, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, the father loves the son. The son loves the father. Jesus loves the father. There's no doubt about it. Jesus shows his love for the father in so many ways. He honors him with his words. He obeys him with his life. He acknowledges him in all of his teaching. But the way that the the son shows his love for the father in the greater way, that's greater than any other way, is by going to the cross and sacrificing himself, laying himself down for the sheep, but also in accordance to the will of the Father. And the Father equally honors the Son by raising Jesus from the grave. Jesus did not die in vain, but at the crucifixion and resurrection, we see Jesus accomplish the Father's will. And in the resurrection, the Father gives Jesus the name that is above every name. Jesus is God's gift of love. And the church is Jesus's love gift back to the Father. So again, in these verses, Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. And how are we to understand this? By better understanding the love between the Father and the Son. Because Jesus says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. This is perfect love. This is intra-Trinitarian love. Just look at how much the Father loves the Son and how much the Son loves the Father, and you will better understand how much Jesus loves his sheep and how much we as his sheep should love him as the good shepherd. The fourth characteristic I want you to see this morning is this, number four, the good shepherd has other sheep, not of this fold. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Here's what we see in verse 16, your next blank. Jesus is bringing others into the fold. Uh, The good shepherd is not only focused on Israel, he's focused on the Gentiles. He he has not limited salvation for the Jews only, but he invites non-Jews to be grafted in. And this is made more clear in John eleven fifty two, where we learn that Jesus died not only for the nation of Israel, but also for those outside of Israel as well. Speaking of the crucifixion, we learn that it was not for the nation only, John eleven fifty two, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So yes, Jesus came first for the Jews, but then for the whole world. Yes, he focused his ministry initially on his people, and then he goes to the whole world. And we see this again in Acts 18 when Paul has his vision in Corinth, which is a Greek city. He has that vision where he says, uh, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Just think about that. That's just just like so awesome, right? Paul's out in Corinth, Greek city, Uh, atmosphere, doing the hard work of evangelism in in a pagan city that mocks God, 
Even those who were coming to Christ were still struggling with sin, and the church had its issues, but you know what? Christ said, I have people right here. He tells Paul, you're exactly where I want you to be. You're to be right here. I've got people in this city, in this town. My arm is not too short to save. We've got to remember that. Sometimes we try to witness to our neighbors and try to share the gospel at school and the people you work with, and you just get shut down. And you think, that's it, I've had it. Well, be reminded, Jesus might be saying to you, I've got people right here in Santa Clarita who need the gospel. And we have the opportunity to work along with the good shepherd who promises that he's got people that he wants to bring into the fold. You know what I think part of the problem is, is we're not careful. We can become too much like the Jews, thinking that salvation is only for us. Those who have been brought up in Christian homes, those who've been to Awana, those who've been taught the Bible their whole lives, those who have Christian moms and dads, those are the Christian kind of people, and everyone else, they're just lost. No, the, the gospel is for sheep that are not yet in this fold. The gospel is for the weak and for the weary and for the addict and for the alcoholic and for the homeless and for the homosexual. The gospel is for the poor and for the prideful. It's for Westerners and it's for those in Afghanistan and Iraq and North Korea. In fact, when I was just in Singapore last month, Pastor Soon Yang told me that he's very, very excited about the summit, that we don't know if it really accomplished anything, but if it did, between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, he told me he was so excited about that. And I thought he was saying, oh, because we'll have world peace and they won't be a threat for a nuclear disaster because Singapore is kind of close. And he said, no, 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 Adam, I'm so excited about it because if they make some type of peace treaty, we're going in. We have people over there and we can't get in. And we're going to come in and feed those sheep and we want to see North Korea come to Christ. I said, sign me up, Pastor. I'm here. You, you're going on a mission trip to North Korea. You call me. I'm coming. Who's with me? Come on. Who wants to go to North Korea? That's what we're talking about, right? We've got to think outside the box and outside the mold here. We're talking about how this verse, 16, is a pre-Great Commission verse. It's an example of Christ's heart for the nations. We see this in Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's the kind of heart we've got to have, right? In John 10 context, Jesus is reminding the Jews that the gospel is bigger than Israel. It reaches beyond the Jews into the foreign lands and the foreign cultures because Jesus has other sheep. And aren't you grateful that he has other sheep? Because let me tell you something, unless you're Jewish, you are that other sheep. Most of you in here are Gentile in origin, and if he, when he was saying this, he was thinking about you. We better be thankful that he was thinking about us, and the Bible says that those who have received a blessing are to be a blessing. And if you've received a blessing and salvation, and if you're in Christ this morning, then you are called to share that blessing with others. And you've got to remember this morning that Jesus' calling is bigger than one people group. It's bigger than one language. It's bigger than one ethnicity. It's bigger than one nation. And we should have that same heart. We need to be involved in evangelism right here in Santa Clarita and throughout the globe. We need to be raising our kids and encouraging college students to give their lives away for the furtherance of the gospel. I was just listening to Piper this week 
always does me good to listen to a little Piper once in a while, right? And I'm listening to him preaching at the cross conference that David Platt sets up that they have every year. And they're having this Q&A about how come missions is kind of starting to take off, but it's still kind of lulls a lot of times here in America, raising up and sending people out to the mission field. And so they ask Piper, what's the biggest deterrent to raising up and sending out missionaries overseas to share the gospel? And you know what he said? He said, it's their parents. Too many college kids get a harebrained idea that maybe God's calling me to the nations, and they begin to talk about it to their mom and dad, and mom and dad say, no, 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 son, you don't want to do that. You've got to get a good career first. You've got to get an education and a job, and we don't want you going overseas. And I thought, what a shame. Like, our, our, uh, we as parents ought to be raising up our kids and not just saying, hey, I want you to be a doctor, I want you to be a lawyer, a policeman, a fireman. It's like, son, I want you to be a missionary. Daughter, I want you to go work in an orphanage overseas. We, we want you to do whatever God wants you to do, but we should be inserting those kind of thoughts and, and realizing that your children are not your own. You're just a steward. You're, we're to raise them up and shoot them out like arrows. God forbid that we'd have parents in our congregation that would ever deter a young high school student or college student from going overseas. I'm about to get upset here in a moment, so let's keep going here to the next blank here. Is not only is he bringing others into the flock, your next blank, he's being unified as one flock. Being unified as one flock is also an important part to our Lord Jesus Christ where he says, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's only, there's only one. All true sheep listen to one true voice. We may look different on the outside, but on the inside, we have his blood pumping through our veins. We are all to have the same mind and the same attitude in Christ Jesus. It was early in the 18th century when crowds would come to hear the great evangelist George Whitfield by the tens of thousands. And when this traveling minister came to town, his meetings were to not be missed. And one day in Philadelphia, a crowd cheered and yelled for Whitfield as he stood on a hill outside the central part of the city, mesmerizing the audience with his dynamic message. Whitfield said this, Father Abraham, whom have you in heaven? He shouted, any Baptists? No, the people roared. Any Episcopalians? No, the people shouted. Any Presbyterians? Whitfield danced around the stage as he spoke, jabbing the air with his hands. No, any independents or seceders, new sides or old sides, any Methodists. No, 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 the crowd shouted in reply. Whitfield called out, whom have you there then, Father Abraham? We don't know those names here. All who are here are Christians, believers in Christ, Men who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. Whitfield says, God help me. God help us all to forget having names and to become Christians in deed and in truth. And what a great reminder, right? The fact that if you know Christ and you're one in Christ, we're all united in one true church. And there are simply too many separations of the church on earth and we will all be one church in heaven, one bride, one body, one people of God, the true universal church. Now, I know we have our differences on ordinances, and I know there's a lot of churches who aren't churches because they don't believe in the gospel. What I'm talking about is true churches that hold to the true gospel, that we have a little bit of variation. We're still one. 
This is Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We also read later in John's gospel that by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we've got to ask ourselves, are you loving your fellow brothers and sisters in this church? Are you loving your fellow Christians that go to other churches? Do you realize that in Christ, if they are truly in Christ, we are all one? Now, the final characteristic that we'll see and we'll be done, number five, the good shepherd lays down his life and takes it up again. We could say here, Jesus has the responsibility to lay his life down. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No doubt the Father loves the Son for many reasons, but this one reason is undeniable. This one reason is why Jesus came to earth. This one reason is above all others. The one reason fulfills the plan of redemption perfectly. This one reason reminds us of the fact that Jesus came to die. He came to lay his life down as a ransom for many. No one takes Christ's life. He lays it down on his own accord. Isn't this so obvious throughout the Gospels that they don't really can Jesus? They don't really crucify him in the sense of their timetable, their way. It's, it's, he gives them everything that they get, right? I mean, think about how many times they were trying to arrest him, and he thwarted their every attempt until his time had come. It's John 7.30. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20. These words he spoke in the treasury. He taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 10.39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Or how about the time that he was in his own hometown of Nazareth and they tried to kill Jesus, Luke 4, 29 and 30. So they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I mean, even when the Jews came with the soldiers that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of the armed Roman soldiers came looking for Jesus, and Jesus simply said, I am he. And in that moment, they all drew back, and they all fell down. It was in John uh, 18:6 when they, they fell to the ground. It's Matthew 26, 23. Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Uh, Jesus said to Pilate, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So no, no, no one took Jesus' life for him. He offered it up freely in his time and in his way. And even while he was on the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Listen to me. Jesus laid down his life. He fulfilled this responsibility not by force, but by his own perfect will. And then we see, next blank, Jesus had the authority to take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The question is often asked, who raised Jesus from the dead? Was it the Father or did Jesus raise himself from the dead? Or was it the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. 
Romans 6, 4, we're told that the Father raised him from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. In John 2, 19, we're told that Jesus raises himself from the dead when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. In Romans 8, 11, we are told that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead in the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. I, I like the words of A.W. Pink on this, quote, these passages are not contradictory, but complementary. They supplement one another. Each passage is contributing a separate ray of light on the glorious event of which they speak. Putting them together, we learn that the resurrection of the Savior was an act in which each of the three persons of the Trinity concurred and cooperated. So this charge Jesus received from the Father and this charge or commandment he would fulfill perfectly in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus is the good shepherd. Why? He lays down his life for his sheep. He is not like a hired hand. He knows his sheep and he loves and cares for each one individually. Jesus brings others into the fold and he unifies them into one flock. He lays down his life and he takes it up again, fulfilling the charge that he received from his father. If you're here this morning and you don't know the good shepherd, I call you this day to come to the good shepherd of the soul. This morning, I call you wherever you are coming from or whatever your situation is, I'm calling you to turn from your depravity, to abandon your sin, to turn and tune your ears toward this voice of this shepherd who is a good shepherd. Maybe he's calling you this morning. You could have been in church for a little while or your whole life. Is he calling your name? Can you hear his voice? Will you come today to the true shepherd? These last questions make it plain. Do you know the good shepherd this morning? Many, I fear, think they know. But if you really know, is it being evidenced in your life that when you hear his voice, you move to where he is and you follow him out into the adventure of a spirit-filled Christian living and obeying every word of Christ? That's really what number two is also saying. Have you followed his voice? Not just do you hear his voice, do you follow it? Do you heed his voice as he directs us as his sheep into the pasture and into the areas of life that he's called us to? Number three, are you part of his flock? I didn't say, are you a member of the church? I didn't ask you if you've been baptized. I didn't say, do you like taking communion? I said, are you a part of his flock? Are you part of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ submitting under the one and only good shepherd? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning, the opportunity to be encouraged and challenged and really just, just standing in awe of the, the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving us these divine metaphors of being the door and now being the, sh the, the, uh, the shepherd of the sheep. I pray, God, that we would look at these pictures that Christ has given to us as being divinely given and that we would gain and garner much insight and encouragement and blessing from what we've heard and what we've seen in the teaching of our Lord this day. I pray that every lost sheep would be found and that we would be under shepherds calling out, pointing others to the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.